Hi, Chris Glynn here with the Nightlight Podcast. Before we start, I'm excited to announce the launch of our new Shopify store, where you can now purchase online my King James Audio Bible and also the apocryphal books that are very popular on this channel. And the beauty of it is that you can download them immediately onto your computer or device. The link to the store is below. Please do check it out and treat yourself to a title and help support this channel. We have a guest tonight on Nightlight. And our guest on Nightlight is David Karan. Nice to have you back with us, Dave. Oh, it's so good to be back, Chris. Thank you so much for the opportunity and for having me once again. I always love being here and I love to have the opportunity to speak to all of your listeners around the world. Always great to have you on the show, And in fact, I think it's because of the pulse that I've kind of gotten from your listeners around the world that I've chosen this next topic because I think the last one that we did together was the one from the Sermon on the Mount regarding the do not swear. Yes, that's right. And I think just the feedback that we got from that and the number of comments that came in about how people really appreciated that teaching made me think, okay, maybe next time I'm on the call, I should do something from the Sermon on the Mount again. Okay, great. Looking forward to it. Yeah, and I personally really like the Sermon on the Mount for the simple reason that these are passages that we know so well that we can just brush by them without actually really thinking about what Jesus is actually trying to get at. Very true. But the thing is, whenever any passage becomes too familiar to us, we lose a lot of the beauty of it. Because many of the times, the things that Jesus says, especially in the Sermon on the Mount, for us, they sound like very beautiful little platitudes. But actually, when you think about them in their absolute reality, it's some of the most difficult things that Jesus ever told his disciples to do. That's right. When I was going through it, when I was teaching it, and I'm not sure if you know this, but I taught on the Gospel of Matthew consecutively for almost two years. It took us two years to get from the beginning to the end. Wow. We spent about three months in the Sermon on the Mount, just pouring over it section by section and actually really trying to get down to the bottom of it. And so I'm excited to share some of that with your listeners today. Switch off and switch on to Nightlight. So if you have your Bible handy with you, Chris, can I ask you to pull up and find the book of Matthew or the Gospel of Matthew? We're going to read chapter 5, verses 38 through 42. Ye have heard that it hath been said, An eye for an eye, and a tooth for a tooth. But I say unto you, that ye resist not evil. But whosoever shall smite thee on thy right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if any man will sue thee at the law, and take away thy coat, let him have thy cloak also. And whosoever shall compel thee to go a mile, go with him twain. Give to him that asketh thee, and from him that would borrow of thee, Turn not thou away. Okay. So this is one of those famous passages where we it's almost become cliched in our culture. You know, this concept of turn the other cheek and give your shirt and someone borrows from you or go walk a mile with them. I mean, it's literally become an idiom in our conversations. Okay, why don't you just go ahead and turn the other cheek? And it's become almost I'd say an anathema where people hate to hear this concept. What do you mean, turn the other cheek? I don't want to turn the other cheek. If I turn the other cheek, then something is really going wrong. And that means that I'm a pacifist. It means that I'm allowing certain things to go on. And no, I actually want to get in there and, you know, push my way around. And this passage 
unfortunately, because it's not properly understood or because it's become something that's been talked about a bit too much that unfortunately we've lost the gold of it. Right, I'm sure. And so what I want to try to do is in order for to help us get a renewed sense of just how powerful this passage from Jesus is, I want to actually talk a little bit about the natural reality that Jesus is actually talking about going against here. Okay, sounds interesting. Because what he's talking about in this particular set of verses goes completely against the human grain. Yes, right. It goes totally against anything within our human nature and anything actually pretty much in the nature of life here on this earth. As you know, sometimes I like to get into you know various different sources. So I'm going to take us into a bit of science today because I think that science is awesome. And as I've mentioned, you've heard me mention before in my recordings, I believe that if God is God, he's God of everything. And because he created everything, I believe that everything points to him. That's right. And so... I love looking at things in the natural world to see how it points to the wonder of God's creation and then the commands of Jesus in a way that supersedes that. So every single living organism on this planet, especially as they start getting slightly more complex, and when I say slightly more complex, I mean down to like sea urchins at the bottom of the sea or bugs, all animals that possess a nervous system have this thing which is known as the limbic system. And the limbic system is basically the most basic fundamental neurological function for any creature on this earth with their neurological system. Okay. Whether it be a sea urchin, whether it be a mouse, whether it be a dog, whether it be a lion, whether it be a human. Right. If you possess a neurological system, you have got a limbic system. And what the limbic system does is it is hardwired to spot danger and to escape from it. Right. Because every single creature on this earth was created with an ability to preserve their own life. Yes. We are hardwired as human beings and animals in this world are also hardwired for survival. Right, And so there's this thing that we have in our brains known as the limbic system. And the limbic system, every time it perceives something that's dangerous, every time it perceives something that's a threat, every time it perceives something in the natural world that it is not entirely sure about, a message gets sent to a part of the brain known as the amygdala. And the amygdala starts to produce signals to another part of the brain called the hypothalamus, which is responsible for producing your stress hormones, basically your adrenaline and your cortisol to allow you to do one of two things, which is either to fight or to run away. I never knew that. And so anytime we encounter anything that our brain perceives to be new, that our brain perceives to be scary, that our brain perceives to be dangerous, instantly we'll start feeling the surge of energy, the surge of adrenaline, and our two responses will be to either run away from it or try to fight it as a way of running away and escaping. And this is common to, like I said, any creature on this planet that possesses a neurological function. Right. You're swimming underneath the water, 
and there's a sea anemone there, you put your hand on it, instantly it closes up into a ball. You are walking down the street and you encounter a mouse. Instantly, it jumps up and runs away. Right. You see an animal in the jungle, they say a lion or something, and it gets surprised. Instantly, its first response is either to run away or to go and chase that thing so it can run away and preserve its life. Human beings itself, when we're scared, let's say we're walking around the corner and we hear a noise that we didn't expect, or we encounter a situation that scares us, our default response is to either run away from it or to find some way to fight it so we can actually escape with our lives intact. And this is part of the way that we've been created. It's part of the wonderful complexity of the way that God made humankind and the way that God made this world. Wow. Praise God. However, there is a part of our brain that we as human beings have that is developed far more than any other creature on this planet and more than any other mammalian creature either. And that is a part of our brain called the prefrontal cortex. And the prefrontal cortex is actually the logical part of the brain, which allows us to actually think through things and process. Wow, I'm learning a lot. And so when we face something that's scary and we face something that catches us off guard, our natural response is for fighting it or fleeing away from it. But we have the ability with our prefrontal cortex to actually start thinking about what does this actually mean and what do I actually do in a situation like this? Right. And so through that logical thinking in the prefrontal cortex, that part of your brain actually reasons with the limbic system and says, hey, that noise, it was just a creaking door. You don't have to be scared of it. Oh, that noise, that was just something falling down by the street. It's not near enough for you to cause any danger. And so that's why we're quickly able to, when something scares us, to be able to actually go on and deal with our lives because now there's something that explains it and gives it meaning. But let's suppose that it is actually something that is dangerous, or it is actually a situation where we encounter something that does propose some threat. The prefrontal cortex actually allows us to be able to figure out how to deal with that situation. Interesting. So, okay, I'm in this situation, and there's an option I could run away, there's an option I could fight, or maybe I could do this as a way of fixing this situation. Now, it takes a little bit of time for the prefrontal cortex to be able to actually process all the available information that's there. So, which is why it's usually because the response from the limbic system is instant that most of us make the split decision to either flee or fight in a particular moment before we actually allow our prefrontal cortex to properly process all of this. So, where am I going with this? Yes, I was, I was wondering. There are some people who we look up to and admire, and there are some individuals that we actually celebrate through stories who have this incredible ability to supersede the very basic fundamental biology of preservation in a way that supports 
a cause that is greater and a cause that is stronger than their natural way of feeling. Right. We call these people heroes, right? Yes. We call them superheroes even, and we make movies about them. That's right. Because these are people who have an incredible ability to be able to put aside their natural expected response for wanting to save their own lives. And they have this incredible ability to actually go into situations that other people would find terrifying and go into situations that actually other people would find extremely dangerous. And they do it because they are connected to a cause that is greater than themselves. Right. And because they believe in a truth that is greater for themselves than themselves. Yes. So think, for example, about a firefighter. Fire is one of the most basic things that human beings and animals are afraid of. We see a fire, we run away from it. And yet you have people who actually go into the fire to rescue people who are stuck inside and to put it out. And that just goes against the average human grain because like, how do these people have the courage to actually run back inside that house and pull the people out of there? Do you think they're not afraid? No, of course they are. Do you think their genetics are not screaming at them to get out of there as fast as possible? Of course it is. Do you not think that their brain is on overdrive and their heart is beating just as fast as yours and everything in them wants to run away from that situation? Of course. What pushes them in there? Good question. Because they are aligned with a cause that is greater and because they are connected to something and they see themselves as somebody who is playing a part in a bigger story that means so much more than just their own life. Wow, that's right. But through being a part of this movement of being a firefighter, they are able to actually preserve other lives at the cost of their own. And so what they do is, in basic training, when they go through the training, they consistently talk to them about these scary situations that they're going to find themselves in. They consistently talk to them about how to be faced with a fire. And then they ask them, well, what's your motivation for being faced with this fire? What is the motivation? And they're like, I want to save one person. I want to get them out of there. I want to show that I can, you know, I can bring another human being back to safety. I want to show that life and hope is not lost. And so they'll make them go through this and say it to themselves over and over and over again to basically drill it into their prefrontal cortex to the point that their logical part of the brain starts overtaking their natural response. And then when they start exposing them to smaller fires, the person who's training them will say, what is your motivation for going into this fire? What is your motivation going to this fire? And they will repeat to themselves the same thing. I'm going into this and I'm facing this because for this reason, because I want to save this person, because I want to make a difference, because I don't believe that an accident that happened should remove a human life. I believe that human life is valuable. And what happens is as they start facing it, 
and conquering their fear in smaller ways through the logic of the prefrontal cortex, giving them that reasoning for a cause that they're connected to that is greater, they're able to put their self-preservation on the side, which means when they're faced with a situation that most people run away from, they run towards it, not because they're not scared. Not because they don't have any ability to preserve their own lives, not because they have some brain damage that doesn't make them or allow them to feel any fear. Right. It's just because they have hardwired in their brains a cause that is greater than themselves wow. and a truth that is worth giving their own lives for, that they're willing to put aside their need for self-preservation in order to save another life. God bless them. And we see this in in firefighters. We admire them. We see this in people who go into dangerous situations, rescue people. We admire that in them. And then we take this and we commercialize it and we put this in our movies and we love and admire superheroes. I mean, there's the superhero movie franchise, which currently is like the biggest movie franchise of all time. And it's the Avengers movie series and you have all these incredible superheroes you know you have spider-man you have captain america you have iron man you have all these incredible superheroes and one of the things that everyone admires about them is their ability to get into situations where everyone is running away from and are powerless to do anything about it and these people are going in there and making a difference that's true there was one such movie which released um, at the end of 2018 and 2019, which is actually a culmination of 15 years uh, before of these stories being told about these superheroes. And the premise of this movie is that there is this incredible alien being who comes down to Earth seeking these stones, which will enable him to kill half the life of the in the universe. And he succeeds. And there's only one half of the universe population left alive. And there's one guy who was a superhero kind of got lucky because everybody else who he knew kind of died, but he was alive and his wife was alive and his kid was alive. When they come to him later and say, we want to do some time traveling so we can actually go back and fix this so we can find a way of bringing all these people back to life. And he says, I actually don't want to risk that because what happens if we change everything and I lose what I've gotten? So I don't want to do that because I love my wife and I love my kid. It's a risk that's too great for me to take. This person says, look, everybody lost something and everybody's suffering. You have to make the choice. What is the most important thing to you? Is those personally that you love, do they mean as much to you as half of the universe who you could have the potential to save? Gosh, what a choice. And so he finally comes around and he says, okay, I'll go, but as far as I need to. But the thing is, I if it starts looking like it's going to threaten my family in any way, then I am not going to go all the way. Fast forward, the movie goes through a bunch of twists and turns. It ends with a final scene where in his hand, he has the power to reverse the entire thing, but it will cost him his life. And in that moment, he takes the decision to sacrifice his own life to bring the whole of the humanity that was lost and the people from the planets that was lost. He makes that decision in that moment to sacrifice his own life in order to bring that about. And that is such a powerful um, scene in the movie. 
it is actually voted as one of the most powerful movie scenes of all time. And many people left the theater after that in tears. They're like, I wish we could be like that. That is such a heroic moment. I wish there was a possibility for someone to actually be able to be so self-sacrificial, to be able to actually go and sacrifice their own life without any thought for themselves, even though they do know the stakes that it involves, even though they do know what they're giving up, but they are so hardwired that regardless of what they have to give up to get it, or regardless of what the personal cost is to themselves, they are able to make that heroic decision to give up everything for that cause that is greater that they believe in and for that truth that is stronger than anything that their human, natural human tendencies are turning them against. And that's why we call these people superheroes. So, why am I going there? I'm going there because the reason why we have a lot of issues with some of the content of Jesus's words in the Sermon on the Mount is because our culture right now has a lot of very popular buzzwords. Right. You know, we talk about self-love, we talk about self-preservation, we talk about self this and self that, and that's fine, but you'll never be a hero. Because the very definition of a superhero is someone who is aligned with a cause that is greater than themselves and has a love for something that is completely outside of oneself. That's true. And it is only when you have that love that is greater and that cause that is stronger that it will actually enable you to overcome your natural feelings and to overcome your natural response to be able to escape. Right. So instead of running away or fighting back pettily, you willingly give yourself to a greater cause. That, I believe, is what Jesus is getting at with his words. That is what I believe Jesus is speaking to when he's calling his disciples to give their lives for the kingdom of heaven. He's calling them to do things that are completely outside the zone of the natural human tendencies. That's right. He's calling his followers to do things that are completely opposite to what we naturally want to do. Yes. He's calling his followers to completely change their basic fundamental reactions to things for a cause that is greater and a love that is stronger. Basically, he's calling each and every one of his followers to have what has been coined the superhero gene. What's a superhero gene? The superhero gene is what people call the alignment to a cause that is greater than oneself, which is driven by love and devotion to something that is completely outside of oneself. Right. And this is the calling that Jesus places on every one of his followers. But it's not just the call that Jesus places on his followers. This is the very definition of how Jesus himself lived his life. Because Jesus, actually, if you look at it, he was the ultimate superhero. He was. I mean, you want to talk about someone who gave their life for a cause that was greater and a love that was stronger? 
and who consistently did things that were completely against the human grain, why he could walk towards his execution while all his disciples around him panicked and fled, why he could reach out and touch somebody and heal them while everyone else was shrinking away, why he could face up to crazy storms while everyone else is panicking and hiding, why he could just consistently reach out with love and compassion you know, after going days without proper food and proper sleep and all his disciples are just trying to get some rest or just trying to find some food and like, please send them away because right now we need to take care of ourselves. Right. You want to talk about someone who actually had that ability? The best person to look at is Jesus. Absolutely. And Jesus consistently talked about his calling. He consistently talked about his mission. He consistently talked about his passion, consistently talked about the love that he had and for the reason why he was sent that compelled him to go above and beyond what most people would consider to be naturally possible. So, Chris, if you can pull up John chapter 10, if you have it, and if you can read verse 11 to 18 for us. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd giveth his life for the sheep. But he that is an hireling and not the shepherd, whose own the sheep are not, seeth the wolf coming, and leaveth the sheep, and fleeth. And the wolf catcheth them, and scattereth the sheep. The hireling fleeth, because he is an hireling, and careth not for the sheep. I am the good shepherd, and know my sheep, and am known of mine. As the Father knoweth me, even so know I the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. And other sheep I have, which are not of this fold, them also I must bring, and they shall hear my voice, and there shall be one fold and one shepherd. Therefore doth my Father love me, because I lay down my life, that I might take it again. No man taketh it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. This commandment have I received of my Father. Okay, so Jesus actually speaks to this in a very interesting way, and I hope that everything we've discussed over the past few minutes helps to put in context what's happening here. So he says, imagine there's a shepherd, and imagine there's someone hired to watch the sheep, and a wolf goes and attacks the sheep. The one who's just hired to watch the sheep turns tail and runs away. Why is he running away? It's the natural human response. And what is the cause that he's attached to? I'm just here for the money. I'm here to get my money, and that's why I'm watching the sheep. So if I run away, I'm not going to get paid. But if I run away, I'm not going to die. And right now, the money doesn't mean as much to me as my life. And so he turns and runs because his allegiance is to himself and his cause that is I need to get paid so I can have the money that I need so I can live my life. That cause is not greater than himself because the reason that he's there working is for the preservation of himself. Therefore, when his natural instincts kick in, the first thing that he does is he runs away and he's true to himself. That's right. But the shepherd who's there and the wolf attacks the sheep, the shepherd goes out and fights the wolf, not because he's not afraid, not because he's not scared, not because he's not as terrified as the man who ran away. Maybe he's more terrified, but he has a greater cause. And his greater cause is those sheep are going to die if I don't get in there and fight. Those sheep, which are mine, 
these sheep which I have raised from the time that they're little lambs, these sheep who I've cared for, and these sheep who I have you know, raised and taken care of, and also who have kind of taken care of me as well. Because I love these sheep and because they are mine, I can't leave them over to a wolf, right? even for the sake of my own life. And so what Jesus says here, Jesus actually links it up with the concept of having this greater cause. And then he says, this is my cause. He says that I am the good shepherd and I know my sheep and I will bring them in and they will hear my voice and they will be one flock and one shepherd. And so he says that this is my calling. My calling is to be here on this earth to save all of my lost sheep. And so because I know my calling and because this is the command that I got from my father, I can willingly do everything that it entails. I can willingly go even to death. It's not that anyone's forcing me to do it. It's not like anyone will feel shocked if I turn around and say, I actually don't want to die. I want to go somewhere else. In fact, they'll praise me for it. Peter actually will cheer and say, see, Jesus, I was right all along. I told you we were supposed to do this. Right. It's true. Because that was Peter's advice. Peter was like, hey, don't go to Jerusalem because you're going to die. And this can't be the will of God. And so if Jesus said, actually, I don't want to do this, Peter would have said, great job. I'm glad you're finally listening. Let's go back and let's go to Galilee. And no one would have blamed him. If Jesus had gone and said something different to the scribes and the Pharisees, so that way they didn't send him over to Pilate, people would have said, hey, that's great. You know, you did a good job. You preserved your life. You're not dead. People would have, would have praised him. Had he gone to Pilate and said something that turned Pilate against the scribes and the Pharisees and Pilate executed them and released Jesus, we would have said, hey, great job. That was actually very intelligent for Jesus. That was We actually look up to and admire that. Wow, this person had everything against them, and so they so intelligently schemed and got out of this trouble. It's true. But none of us would be here today. That's right. The sheep would still be scattered, and they would not be in the one fold, and we would not be under the one shepherd. Because in order to do that, we needed a savior. In order for that to happen, we needed someone to go so far beyond the natural human tendency to go even to death and to the gates of hell itself to be able to reverse that cycle, to be able to bring us that salvation. And Jesus knew this from the beginning. And we sometimes brush it off for like, okay, you know, but yeah, Jesus is God. Jesus could did that because he was God. Yeah, but he was also fully human. That's correct. He had a brain. His brain had a limbic system. He had fear. He had panic. I mean, read the Gospels. There are so many instances where you see Jesus actually wrestling with his own humanity. That's right. Garden of Gethsemane, struggling with it, having a literal panic attack in the Garden of Gethsemane. It's true. I see what's ahead of me, and I don't want to do it. That was his natural self kicking in. And what did he do? Surrendered. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. Gave himself over to a greater cause because of a greater love that he had. And that's why in John 3.16, it says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Because of that love for the world, because of the love that he had for all of us, for you, for me, he gave himself without any thought of himself, any thought of his own self-preservation, without any thought of his own comfort in order that we might be saved. And that's why Paul can say in the book of in the book of Philippians, 
If you can read this for us, Chris, Philippians 2, verses 6 to 8. Who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of man. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself, and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. So, Paul tells us right there. He says, hey, he was God, but that didn't make him any different from us, because even though he was equal to the Father, he still became flesh. And in every bit of the likeness of the flesh, completely bound to all the limitations of the flesh, he still went and did all that he did. Thank you, Jesus. That's why when he calls us to follow him, and he calls us to walk in his footsteps, and he calls us to actually be able to sacrifice our lives and our comfort and our natural ways of operating, he knows, first of all, exactly what he's talking about, and he knows that it's possible for that to happen for us as humans because he, as a human, did that. And that's why he called to his disciples in Matthew chapter 10 and said, you know, whosoever shall not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. For whosoever shall lose his life for my sake shall save it, but he whosoever finds his life will lose it. But he's saying is, look, if you're trying to preserve your own life and you're trying to do things exactly the way that you want to do, and you're going to constantly be looking out for yourself and you're going to constantly be looking out for your own needs. And anytime you are faced with any of the dangers, which working for the kingdom will naturally put you in. That's right. If you choose yourself in every single one of those situations, you'll save your life, but you'll be a complete loss to the kingdom of God. Because every single situation that you were in where you could have made a difference for that greater cause and for that greater love, you didn't. And that's going to be a loss for the kingdom. You would have saved your life but you would have lost it ultimately. But those who will lose their lives, those who will face these situations, those who will face these crazy difficult things where everything in you is telling you to run away and you give of yourself, you give of your time, even when you don't want to. You give in situations where you feel that it's incredibly uncomfortable. If you even go to the point where you lose your own life, and it allows the kingdom of God to be furthered here on this earth. It allows the purpose of God to be accomplished. Then you have saved your life because what you're doing is you are continuing the mission that Jesus has done, which is why Paul in Galatians chapter 2. Chris, can you read this for us? Um, Galatians 2.20. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Okay, so here Paul encapsulates it for us. He says, look, the person who I was before is dead. Therefore, it is not I who am alive right now, but it is Christ who is living in me. And therefore... The life that I now live, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and who gave himself up for me. And what he says is, says, look, I'm still here. I'm still human. I still face everything that a human being faces. I still face all the fears. I still face all the concerns. I still face the desperate quest for self-preservation. 
And yet, the life that I now live, I live out of love for the one who loved me and gave himself for me. There it is, the cause that is greater and the love that is stronger. And so, because of that, it's not the way that I want to react, but how would Jesus react in this situation? It's not what I would do in this situation. It is, what would Jesus do? In this situation, it's not, oh, this is what I naturally feel inclined to do. It's what would Jesus do? What would the love of Jesus do if he was here in this, if here in this situation? How would he respond? How would he reach out? How would he touch? How would he save? Not because I'm not human anymore. I still am. But now what I'm doing is I am subjugating my natural human tendencies and allowing the tendencies of Jesus to be the ones to take that decision. I am allowing my mind to be so completely filled with the love of Jesus and so completely filled with the words of Jesus and so completely filled with the thoughts of Jesus and so completely filled with the thoughts of the kingdom and the work that he came to do that my prefrontal cortex is so saturated with the truth of God and the love of God and the word of God that every time my natural limbic system tries to get me to escape from a situation or do something in a situation that would naturally make me look better or preserve my life, but it would cause someone else hurt or cause the kingdom hurt, I hear a prick saying, no, what would Jesus do in this situation? And then that's what I choose. What would love do in this situation? And that is what I choose. It is not I who live, but Christ who lives through me. So with this understanding in mind, with this context, let's go back to that passage in Matthew chapter 5. So Chris, I'm going to ask you to turn back to Matthew chapter 5 and read verses 38 through 42 again. You've heard that it hath been said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say unto you that ye resist not evil. But whosoever shall smite thee on thy right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if any man would sue thee at the law, and take away thy coat, let him have thy cloak also. And whosoever shall compel thee to go a mile, go with him twain. Give to him that asketh thee, and from him that would borrow of thee, turn not thou away. Okay, so now I hope we're getting a slightly deeper sense of this of this chapter as well. Definitely we are. There's the quest for self-preservation. And yet, in this, Jesus is calling us to do something that is completely opposite to what would be best for ourselves or what would preserve ourselves, and calling us to something greater. And so, I've coined this term that I'm going to use just as we bring this uh, to a practical application, and this is what is known as the kingdom gene. Okay. Because like the world talks about the superhero gene, which is what the superheroes have, and the other everyday heroes we look up to and admire who do things that are opposite of their own self-interest for a greater cause. Right. And we, as followers of Jesus, as Christians who call ourselves Christians, and the word Christian means like Christ, so therefore we do need to embrace this because we are literally every day calling ourselves like Christ. Therefore, let us be like he was. Amen. So this kingdom gene is when we are so deeply immersed in the knowledge of the love of God and the gospel of grace that we are no longer driven by self-preservation, but by self-sacrifice. That's a good definition. I'll say that again. 
when we are so deeply immersed in the redeeming love of Christ and the gospel of his grace that our natural responses are no longer driven by self-preservation, but by self-sacrifice. A lot of people will at this point say, okay, fine. If Jesus asked me to give up my life for him, I will. But he better not ask me to give up some of my basic comfort to go talk to that person over there because that I don't really feel like doing. You know, it's very easy for people to think about making an ultimate sacrifice. One day, if I was faced with a situation, I would totally do this. And yet, in the smallest things, they shy away from it. It's true. But here's the thing. Jesus almost never calls any of us, or I don't think it's anyone sitting here listening who has been called to make that ultimate sacrifice unto death. In fact, I don't think any of your listeners over here have, because otherwise they wouldn't be listening. That would just be weird, Chris. That's true. (laughs) If anyone's sitting here (laughs) had made the ultimate sacrifice unto death, and now they're sitting here and listening, I mean, I really want to hear their story. But its I don't think any of your listeners here have been called to make that ultimate sacrifice unto death. But I do believe that just in the past 24 hours, each of us have been called to do something that went against our natural grain. That's very true. And that is exactly why this passage is so crucial. Because in this passage, it talks about four things using very ancient biblical language. But I want to take these four things. I want to bring them into our daily experience. So the first thing that this passage talks about is our ego. The second thing this passage talks about is our possessions. The third thing this passage talks about is our time. And the fourth thing this passage talks about is our money. You probably didn't really think about that when you read it for the first time, but Jesus talks about four points of self-preservation, of four things that we think are ours and that we hold on to so desperately that he says have to be submitted to the sovereignty of God because of the cause of the kingdom. Our ego, our possessions, our time, and our money. That's very interesting. And we're going to quickly run through this passage again, bit by bit, and we're going to break down each of these really quickly. So could you read the first part about the turn the other cheek, please, Chris? You've heard that it hath been said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say unto you that ye resist not evil. But whosoever shall smite thee on thy right cheek, turn to him the other also. This passage gets a very bad rep. Because this passage gets the sort of rep like, okay, he's talking about pacifism. He's talking about just letting things kind of go away and not getting there and fighting. That's not what he's talking about at all. Listen to the language that he's using. The language that's being used is not one of a duel. Because, see, duels were very popular in the ancient world. If one person got offended, the other person got offended, they went and they fought it out. They usually fought it out with weapons. So you had a sword, you had a club, you had a mace. You know, you had a spear, you know, the oldest of times, throw away all your weapons, you fight it out hand to hand. But what are you fighting with? You're fighting with your fists. And it's a way of trying to prove yourself who's greater, who's right, who's stronger through violence. That's right. But what does Jesus say is happening in this passage? If anybody slaps you on the face, it's not talking about punching, hitting, or things. He's talking about being slapped. In the ancient time, and I guess all the way up through today, When you slap somebody, it's as a way of humiliating them. Right. It's not as a way of getting into a fight. It's a way of saying you are such a pathetic person, and I consider you so low beneath me 
I'm just going to slap you because I think that your very existence is insulting. For example, this would have been a very common thing in the time of Jesus for someone like, you know, a tax collector or a Roman soldier to see somebody and feel that they were completely a non-entity that they would slap them around. Jesus himself at his trial was slapped multiple times. That's right. By the by the high priest and by the scribes and Pharisees there because they were mocking him and they felt that he had so shown himself to be such a a horrible blasphemer after saying that he was the son of God that they felt that he was worthy of mockery. And so when he says uh, slapping on the cheek, what he's talking about is an extreme humiliation because that's what it was. That's right. What he's talking about in this situation. So let's just take that out and read in this context. If you are extremely humiliated for something that is right, what are you going to do? Are you going to turn around and fight back and try to force that person and everyone around to see that, no, what I'm doing is actually right? Or are you going to say, all right, you can carry on with that, but I'm not moving anywhere. I'm not going anywhere. You can humiliate me. You can shame me. You can call everything I do into question. You can ridicule me. I'm still going to stay the course. You can slap me on my right cheek and slap me on my left. I am not moving anywhere. Wow. Amen. Praise God. And when you understand this, you understand why we admire people like Gandhi, who led the Indian independence movement through nonviolence. Why we admire people like Martin Luther King, who led the civil rights movement in the U.S. through nonviolence. This was their stance. You guys want to make fun of us? Fine. You want to humiliate us? Fine. You want to do terrible things to us? Fine. We're not going anywhere. Throw me in prison. I'll come back out later and be back in the exact same spot. Start a fight. Shove us around. We're not going to fight you back. But tomorrow, we're going to show up in the exact same place. Throw us off the bus. Are we going to go and burn your bus down? No. But next day, all of us are going to come and hang out on that bus to show you that we're not backing down. We're not going to retaliate, but neither are we going to move because we believe in a cause that is greater. Amen. Praise God. And so what Jesus is talking about here, he says that, look, if you're doing something for the kingdom of heaven and people humiliate you for it, if you're doing something you know that God wants you to do and people shame you for it, you need to be okay with that. You want to ridicule my reputation? Fine. You want to question all of my beliefs? Fine. You want to try to make me look bad so you can prove that you're right? Fine. It doesn't matter. You can slander my reputation. You can tell as many lies as you want to about my character. You can make up story after story after story to make me look bad. You can drag me before accusers and try to do everything possible to make me look like I'm the worst person. Fine. That doesn't change anything. I'm not moving. That's fine. Because my character means nothing. My reputation means nothing. Because my cause is just. Because my cause is that of God. And my cause is that of love. And my cause is that of the greater good. So slap me once. I'll be back tomorrow. Shame me publicly. Print horrible things about me. Turn all my friends against me. Get everybody involved and turn me away. For the cause of love, I don't care. For the cause of Christ, I don't care. Look at Paul. Paul was beaten 
Paul was stoned. Paul was arrested. That's right. And then what would he do? What was his message to everything? He gets thrown in prison. He witnesses to the jailer. He gets dragged up by a mob. He preaches to the mob. He gets thrown and dragged before the assembly of judges. And what does he say? I wish you knew the love of Christ that compels me to do this. Wow. Nothing could stop him. He's witnessing to his guards in prison, the same guards who have beaten him. He's witnessing to the magistrates, the same magistrates who have thrown him in jail. And basically what he's saying through his actions, through his words, is like, do whatever you want, because my reputation doesn't matter to me as much as the truth that I stand for. And the thing is, most of the times, what gets us involved in violence, and most of the time what gets us involved in retaliation is in defense of our reputation. Yeah, that's true. It's not in defense of what we stand for. It's the defense of who we think that we are. It is because our ego has been slighted or we feel our character has been attacked that we go and we push back. That's right. And I think there's one word that's a, quite a buzzword nowadays, which is justice. And there are some times where people forcefully you know, we forcefully become violent or we push back on people because, you know, I want justice, I want justice, I want justice. But there was a great quote by a guy named Josh White, which I heard recently, which completely blew my mind. And this is what he said. He says that if we're really honest, most of the time as individuals, we use the term justice as an excuse to violently defend our own egos. Good quote. We feel that our egos are being hurt, and so we go and push back. We feel that our character is being called into question, and so we go into and push back. We feel that other people are being unfair to us or sliding us, and we go and push back. But what Jesus calls us to do is something different. See, that doesn't mean that justice does not exist in this world. In fact, the C.S. Lewis said, so greatly said, and I love C.S. Lewis for this, because he did a very beautiful essay called Longing for Eden, where he talks about everything that the human heart wants, but is not available in this world, is because that is what we once had in the Garden of Eden, is what we will one day discover again in God, but that's why we all seek for it, because we do not have it. Wow, that's something to think about. And so all the things that the human heart kind of really longs for, that are actually values and attributes and characters of God, are things that we had before and we lost and will only be rediscovered when Jesus comes back again. And so, for example, something such as justice, it's not that the fact that we as human beings, we want justice. It's because it is a good thing and it is something that will once again happen when Jesus returns on earth and when he comes and restores his kingdom, all of us will be living under his rule and every bad deed will be accounted for, every good deed will be rewarded, and everything will be perfect. And so because we believe in that coming future, and because we believe in the fact that Jesus is going to win the ultimate victory, and because we believe that right now what God wants us to do here on this earth is to stand for his cause by putting his cause above our own need, by putting his cause above our own character, by putting his cause above our own reputation, and above our own pride and our own ego. So because of that, we can stand in the place where God has put us, around people who will make fun of us around people who will slander us, around people who will try to humiliate us. And we can say, do what you want. I still love you because Jesus loves you. Amen. Are you going to make fun of me? That's okay. I love you. Are you going to try intentionally hurt me? That's okay. 
I love you. Are you going to try to drag my name through the dirt? That's okay. I love you. Are you going to spit upon everything that I hold dear and make fun of my beliefs and fun of everything I've supported? That's okay. I love you. And I'm not going anywhere because the love of Christ compels me. And that is what Jesus is talking about. That's right. We're not called to make people pay when they hurt us. We're called to endure in love because that's what love does. Love endures. It doesn't mean that it doesn't hurt. Of course it hurts. It doesn't mean that we're not going to want to fight back. Of course we want to do it. The natural desire for self-preservation is huge. It's ingrained in us. But because of the love that is greater and a cause that is stronger, we choose to submit to the kingdom and choose what Jesus has to say. That's why when it comes to defending our ego, which is a natural desire, we surrender that to Jesus. Nightlight. What a delight. I'm going to give us four things that we're going to do before we close. Just like the firemen. And remember how we said that when the firemen, they're training, they keep telling themselves and giving themselves affirmations that they keep saying that allows them to actually start rewiring certain patterns of their brain. Because in uh, neurological science, we have this thing which is known as the neurolinguistic programming, which is basically a way of reworking the circuitry of our brain through consistently focusing on something that is said over and over again because the brain codifies knowledge at the highest level through spoken word. And so when you keep saying something over and over again, after a while, that thing starts to be what you believe. Right. And so just like the firemen go into it constantly saying these things that, okay, I'm doing this for this cause. I'm doing this to save one more person. I'm doing this to save one more life. So that way, when they're faced with the reality, that's what naturally takes over. I thought that because Jesus gives us four things over here that are subjugated to his kingdom and that we give up to him for a cause that is greater and a love that is stronger, I thought that we can also give ourselves four things to say around those things. So for the first one, I like to call this the kingdom affirmation. So kingdom affirmation number one is that as a child of the kingdom, I am free from the need to protect my honor. Yes. As a child of the kingdom of heaven, I'm free from the need to protect my own ego. Right. Because God's got it in control. Chris, let's quickly bring this in to a close. Mm -hmm. Let's read the last verses 40 through 42. And if any man will sue thee at the law and take away thy coat, let him have thy cloak also. And whosoever shall compel thee to go a mile, go with him twain. Give to him that asketh thee. And from him that would borrow of thee, turn not thou away. Okay, so the second thing that Jesus is asking for us to give to him as part of the kingdom is our possessions. It's a picture of someone unrighteously and unlawfully taking you to court for something that is not theirs. It's something that you have. They want it from you. They're suing you for it. And what does Jesus say? Give it to them. But that's not right. It's not his. Doesn't matter. God sees. God knows. You can give it. Right. As a child of the kingdom of heaven, you are free from the need of protecting your possessions. As a child of the kingdom, I am free from the need 
to protect my possessions. Why? Because a man's life does not consist of the abundance of what he has. That's right. Jesus consistently told this to the people that he was around. Remember the parable of the rich fool? Yes. The reason why he told the parable of the rich fool is because while he's teaching, two people get up and they're like, hey, you know, make my brother give me what he owes me. And they start arguing about a piece of land. And Jesus is like, beware of covetedness because a person's life does not consist of what he owns. And then when he's talking in the Sermon Mount a little bit later, he says, do not lay up treasures on earth. You know, the moths will corrupt and the, it will rust and thieves will break in and steal. He says, lay up your treasures in heaven because where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And so why will you go to court with somebody to prove that this actually belongs to you? Because you really feel that this means enough to you that you're willing to spend all this time to go and fight for it. And Jesus says, if that's your point of view, you are looking too much to your things. That's right. You are too attached to the things of this world that you are willing to fight so hard for them that it takes you away from actually doing what the kingdom needs. Good point. He doesn't say it's bad to have possessions. He doesn't say it's bad to have things that are yours. He doesn't say it's bad to own stuff. What he's saying is your perspective on the stuff that is yours. If you are so wrapped up in your own things and so wrapped up on this is mine, this is mine, this is mine, that you're willing to spend days, weeks, and years fighting somebody to prove that something is yours, then that means that there's probably something wrong with your perspective. Why? Because who owns the cattle on a thousand hills and the wealth in every mine? God. Your heavenly father. Where are you going at the end of this life? And where are you going to spend all of your eternity? Not here on this earth, not with all your stuff, but in heaven with Jesus, with the rewards of all that your sacrifice has earned. Yes, that's right. It's natural to want to hold on to your things. It's natural to want to hold on to stuff. But if you have a perspective that everything you have is a gift from God, and you know that your time here is precious, and so you need to be using it for the Lord, and you have that perspective, then if something comes up where you are required to relinquish part of your possessions or where part of your possessions can be used better for helping others, it goes against the human grain. But as Jesus says, as a child of the kingdom, you are free of the need to protect your possessions because, number one, they are a gift from God, and so God will supply. Number two, they're not going to be with you forever, and your focus should be on eternity. And number three, whatever moves the kingdom of heaven forward is where your focus should be. And then he talks about being forced to go one mile with somebody. And this was a this was a practice that would take place very often in Israel, because Israel was an occupied territory. And as an occupied territory, they were under the boot of the Romans. And there was a code in Roman law that if a Roman troop was going through a certain place, they could actually make you carry their baggage. Really? And so if a Roman troop was coming by and they had heavy bags, they could actually pass by a family having a picnic and they could pull up the father and give the father the bags and order him to travel with them to the next village and carry their stuff. Gosh. I mean, you want to talk about an unjust society? This is like the most unjust of all. For sure. This is a very real reality that they would have faced. This is why when Jesus was struggling to carry his cross, a Roman soldier could walk over, grab somebody and say, hey, carry his cross for him. It's there in the context of Roman law. Interesting. And Jesus says, if somebody forces you to go one mile with them, go with them two miles. 
If somebody forces you to carry their burden, do it willingly. If somebody takes up your time to do something that seems to be an inconvenience for you, who knows whether or not this is an opportunity that God is placing in your path to be used of him. That's very true. There's another great quote, which I heard recently, that says that the Christian life is basically a series of divine inconveniences. (laughs) Right. God will consistently place things in your path that seem like an inconvenience. God will consistently place things in your path, opportunities to talk to other people, opportunities to give of yourself, opportunities to reach out, where who knows where the miracles in that lies? Who knows where the fruit in that lies? Who knows which lives that you have the opportunity to touch then that will be their only chance or only opportunity? That's right. But if you're looking at your time as mine, 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 everything will seem like an inconvenience. And for those of you who are parents, you will know that as parents also, your life is a series of divine inconveniences. And that's why you have parents who have such a difficult time making the transition, because when they're parents, it's so difficult, this is mine, this is mine, this is mine, this is mine. And when your child wakes up in the middle of the night, it's like, oh, it's my sleep. This is inconvenience. You know, the child cries like 10 times a day. This is my time. I'm supposed to be at work. This is an inconvenience. And some parents never get used to it. But some parents have a perspective as this is my child. Wakes up, well, it doesn't matter. He's hungry. Let me feed him. He needs to be walked around. I'll do that. I do it willingly. Why? Because my time is not my own. My time belongs to this beautiful new human being as part of the family. And because of the love that I have, and because the cause that is greater, I'm willing to do it. Same thing. Jesus is like, it seems like an inconvenience, but then your time is not your own. Yes. Your life is going to be full of inconveniences to your time. Jesus' life was full of inconveniences. But he's like, I must do the works of my father while it is day, for the night comes when no man can work. So he knew that everything that came across his path, whether it was a woman sitting by the well, whether it was a crowd that you know ambushed him on his way when he was going up to the mountain to pray, whether it was some random kids who came and started playing with them when the disciples were about to sit down to eat, what was Jesus' response every time? Let them come. Let them come. Talk to them. His life was full of divine inconveniences. Our lives be full of divine inconveniences. But of what is our perspective on them? Is our time ours or is our time God's? And the final part of that of the passage is, if someone asks you for something, give, to borrow it, give it willingly. That's the perspective of money. The coat costs money. What Jesus is basically trying to say is that, look, the same thing as your possessions, your money comes from God. The things that you have are given from God. And so you can share them willingly. So as a child of the kingdom, you are free from the need to protect your time. As a child of the kingdom, you're free for the need to protect your money. Why? Two reasons. One reason is that this life is temporal. The kingdom is eternal. This time on earth is fleeting. God's kingdom is an eternity. That's why Jesus looked at his disciples and said, if you don't pick up your cross and follow me, you're not worthy of me. And whosoever will save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life will save it. And then the disciples said, we have given up everything for you. What will we get? And he looked to them and said, everyone has forsaken houses or brethren or sisters or fathers or mothers or wife or children of land for my sake to receive a hundredfold and shall inherit everlasting life. The things that you give up on this earth for the cause of the kingdom are not in vain because the Lord sees and the Lord will repay. The things that you go through on this earth for the cause of the kingdom is not in vain 
because the Lord sees and the Lord will repay. The things that you submit to God and give up for God on this earth are not in vain because the Lord sees and the Lord will repay. The Lord is a righteous judge. The Lord is faithful. And the Lord promises to give to those who give up for him. It's a very, very sound biblical principle that if you give to the Lord, he repays. You give of your time to the Lord, the Lord repays that, whether here or in eternity. You give of your finances to the Lord, the Lord repays that, whether here or in eternity. You give up your family to the Lord, the Lord repays that, either here or in eternity. The Lord is a righteous judge. He will always repay. That's the first reason. But the second reason is because that's what Jesus did for you. That's what Jesus did. The ultimate superhero came down, lived, died, and called you to follow in his footsteps, called you to be part of his epic mission that is restoring the kingdom of God on this earth. This epic mission that will one day conclude in the culmination of his return. And for that great cause and for that great love, nothing can compare to it. That's right. Because of this cause and because of this love, everything else is secondary. And that's why it comes down to a matter of your perspective. What matters most to you? Do you matter most to you? Does your life matter most to you? Does your time matter most to you? Does your pride matter most to you? Does your comfort matter most to you? Or does the kingdom of heaven matter the most to you? Does the love of Jesus matter the most to you? Does the grace of God matter the most to you? Because if you are focused on yourself, if you are focused on your comfort, if you are focused on your time, if you are focused on your possessions, then Jesus will never be enough for you, and the kingdom of heaven will always be an inconvenience. If you are focused on the things that you have and what belongs to you, then the things of God will actually appear hateful to you because of what it costs. But if you have surrendered yourself to the Lord and you are filling yourself with his love and with his word and with his truth, your desire will be towards him. And when he is your ultimate desire, everything else becomes second place, and you freely give up everything for him. As Paul said, and we'll close on this because this is the powerful verse that I wanted to remind you of once again, which we read earlier. I am crucified with Christ. Therefore, it is not I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Therefore, the life that I live, I live by faith in Christ who died for me and gave himself for me. So this then is your challenge going forward. Have you really been crucified with Christ? Have you truly died to yourself? In embracing the call of Christ, have you truly thought it through and seen what it meant to your desires, to your will, to your conveniences? And have you truly taken on the mind of Christ to the point where when you're faced with situations, you choose what Jesus would choose. When you're faced with inconveniences, you choose what Jesus would choose. When you're faced with opposition, you choose what Jesus would choose. Because that's what it means to be crucified with Christ. That's what it means to be a hero, which is what each one of us are called to be. That's what it means to be a child of the kingdom, which each one of us are called to be. Those who surrender our pride, 
our possessions, our money, our time, and our very life to a love that is greater and a cause that is stronger. This cause is the kingdom of heaven, which will one day be restored. And this love is the God of heaven who stepped out of heaven because he loved you. Do you love him? Are you living for the kingdom of heaven? Look at your perspectives, look at your actions, and evaluate whether or not you truly are crucified with Christ. And if you are, are you choosing to live as Jesus would have you live? Thank you, Chris. And thanks so much, David Curran. By the way, we're posting a new Nightlight show at 1800 GMT every Sunday. And sometimes there'll be a post on Thursdays as well. But the Sunday show will be regular at that time, 1800 Greenwich Mean Time. And don't forget to check out our new Shopify store. The link is below. Treat yourself to a title and help support this channel and our African Bible recording ministry. God bless you. Bye for now.